The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I can remember when the pandemic hit back in March. We were preaching through a series on 2020 vision, taking different texts, walking through them. We were going to vote in April, and then the plan was that I was going to go on sabbatical in May. We realized quickly that the Lord's thoughts were not our thoughts, His ways were not our ways. So we decided that as three campuses, we should preach through a book together. Rather than take different topics, let's go through a book. And so we decided in the midst of challenging circumstances, First Peter and its message for how to face challenging circumstances would be a great book to go through together. But I don't think that Stephen Lee and Dave Zuliger and I realized that we would be hitting this these three weeks covering the most three challenging moments in our cultural moment of the, the, the political sphere, slavery, and gender roles, all three right in a row. But God loves us, and in His wisdom, He knew we needed to go through this. Let me just say a word at the outset. We're, we're supposed to say who we are, especially when we're doing the, the live stream, supposed to introduce ourselves, and I, I haven't really gotten used to doing that, but this morning I want to because my job title had one word added to it. No longer pastor for preaching and vision. I'm now Jason Meyer, pastor for preaching and vision downtown. I didn't say that so you would clap, to be clear, <laughs> but thank you. My smile has been really big. My eyes have been really bright. I find myself kind of gravitating towards ministry platform, learning names of people downtown. It, it has been a joy to think about just being poured out to know one people rather than three peoples on three different campuses in three very different contexts. And so for me, th this has been a, a long time coming in my prayer closet and to see this day, I just rejoice. I am so glad, so happy to be your pastor. We're gonna be uh, doing a little bit more formal something next week. Ken's on vacation this week, so we're gonna talk about a more official handoff next week, but I just could not let the moment pass. Specifically, let's talk about 1 Peter. Let's talk about the theme that is uniting these three weeks as he focuses on things that are challenging, specifically, how do you submit in challenging circumstances? That is, how do you take a, a position of vulnerability when things are, are challenging and, and feel hard and, and even dangerous? You feel vulnerable. How do you do that? Not only how do you submit in challenging circumstances when you feel vulnerable, but how do you glorify God in it? 
How is your submitting, how you do it and why you do it, how does that glorify God and spread beautiful behavior before the Roman Empire and the watching world? How do you make much of Christ, declare His excellencies in challenging circumstances when you're asked to submit? How does that look? So let me be clear at the outset here, this is not a topical sermon on slavery. If we were going to do that, we would go through what the Old and New Testaments say about slavery. We would have a lot more to say. We have to say some of those points here because of the the broader application we need, but let me be clear. What we need in this text as we preach this text is to pay careful attention to the logic and language of this text to treat it with care and precision because God has something for us and I don't want to miss it in moving out more broadly. So we are going to look specifically at this text because Peter doesn't leave us in the dark about what to do when we face challenging circumstances, and even unjust suffering and many sorrows. So I want to read the text, I want to state the point of it, and then I want to pray. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through verse 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, as I had to remove my mask to speak, we're we're asking for you to remove the veil that is on many hearts and that you would shine with your word, that it would shine in the darkness. Go into the depths of where we still fear, we still doubt, we still wonder. Do you love us? Are you for us? Are challenging circumstances proof that you're really against us, or you just tolerate us, or you're just ambivalent towards us? God, help us not to try to uh, discern your love in the light of circumstances, but to discern these circumstances in the light of your love. Help us and lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Here's the point of this passage. Christians glorify God in the social sphere when they respectfully submit to authority and even endure sorrow and unjust suffering. Why? Because they are mindful of God, verses 19 and 20, and because they see the example of Christ, verses 21 to 25. I want to say that again. Here's the point of the passage. Christians glorify God in the social sphere when they submit respectfully, respectfully submit to authority even with sorrows and unjust suffering because they are mindful of God and the example of Christ. So in the outline, what we have is we have in verses 18 to 20, the command, this is the main point, command, be subject, submit in the social sphere. Servants, submit to masters. And then in verses 21 to 25, he lays out the example of Christ. So both of those points are what we're going to see. We start with verses 18 to 20. What we're going to do is just walk through what does he mean in this context in the first century, masters and servants? What would that be? And then what is the nature of submission? That is, how does it look? And then he gives the reasons for submission. So we start off with just the, the meaning of servants and masters. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Remember, we said last week, submission means, or be subject, means to put yourself willingly under the authority of another. So here, it's a, a disposition, a readiness to respect and obey that person's authority over you. You're receiving that. You're not fighting against it. You're submitting to it. Now, what we learned last week applies here as well. A Christian will do that, submit to the authority of another as long as they don't lead us into sin. As long as they're not, as we saw last week, forbidding something that God commands or commanding something that God forbids. In those cases, we will not, cannot, must not submit. We must obey God rather than men. So here it's saying, uh, obviously, we're not going to submit when they call us to sin. But this word servant, you need to see what it is. It's a different word than the word used in verse 16 for slaves, slaves of God. Here it's a word for household servant. Now that matters because Peter is going to address in chapter 2, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 7, the typical Roman household, starting with servants or slaves and then moving to husbands and wives, and then also you would include children, extended family in a Roman household. Peter is speaking to people in particular who are going to be in vulnerable positions. Here speaking not to masters, but to servants. 
Now, in terms of your social status, this person, this household servant, could either be a, a servant in like a, a business arrangement or a slave. In fact, if you look throughout Roman society, it was more common that this person would be a slave than be in a business servant arrangement. But I think it's important at the outset to compare and contrast first century slavery, slavery in the Roman Empire, with slavery that we saw in America. You, you can't equate them. So let's compare and contrast. Roman slavery was different in its diversification, much different than American slavery. In other words, there's a spectrum of variation or diversification in, in two areas in particular. Number one, where did those slaves come from? And number two, what did those slaves do? So where did they come from? Obviously, American slavery was race-based in the transatlantic slave trade. The slaves came from what the Bible would call man-stealing, sinful to the core. Not just those who bought the slaves, but the other African tribes who would steal and sell. The, the whole business or enterprise was sinful from the get-go. And now when they come over to America and are sold, now they're treated in such dehumanizing ways to justify that slavery that they're denied being made in the image of God. So this was race-based. This was coming from peoples of African descent, coming from there. Roman slavery was different. Roman slavery comes from two main sources, those who were financial debtors or those who were conquered peoples. So sometimes you could have someone be in debt and you have to sell yourself into slavery to pay back that debt. And in that sense, it would be temporary, not permanent. You could pay it back and you would be released from being a slave. So it was primarily then financial. A debt needs to be worked off. But probably more common were those peoples that had been conquered by the Roman Empire and therefore would become slaves. So it wasn't race-based, it was more geographical and geopolitical as the Roman Empire stretches out and conquers different nations. These would end up often becoming slaves. Now, if it's different in terms of the source of slavery, it's also different in terms of what those slaves would do. Because in the Roman world, there was a whole spectrum of variation of jobs that these slaves did, especially household slaves. Some were teachers, doctors, musicians, cooks, managers of the households. Some were like nannies, disciplinarians. They would be entrusted with the children and with education, the, the pedagogues, the pedagogue teacher, sometimes disciplinarian of children. Some, it's true, had hard labor working in the mines or working in the fields. Some were treated with respect and honor as friends of the family. Some were treated with cruel disrespect, harshly, and suffered unjustly. 
So Roman slavery did have more provisions for freedom, wasn't to be as permanent in that sense, but but let's not look at it with rose-colored glasses. This wasn't an easy thing. Oftentimes, it's true, like in our text, sometimes the master could be good and gentle, and sometimes could be cruel and unjust. And our text says it. Some are going to be good and gentle. Some are unjust. It was evil in its enterprise of scope and evil in its treatment often of those slaves being treated in dehumanizing ways. The the, the philosopher Aristotle and other Greek philosophers actually had views that slaves shouldn't be treated with dignity, that they really were lesser classes of people. So let's let's not act as if this was easy, this was hard. And these Christians, some estimates are that half of the Roman Empire and its economy were based on slaves. And many Christians would find themselves in this very difficult, challenging situation. And the Bible speaks to it. What were they to do? Peter's answer is to look now at the nature of submission. How do you do it? What does it look like? There's two words that he gives. The first one you can see there in verse 18 is respect. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not just some respect, all respect, respecting the position even if it's not the person because if the person is unjust, very hard to respect an unjust person, but you're respecting that position. So, all respect, whether good and gentle or unjust. And the other word, because slavery would certainly be difficult and some were unjust, the other word that he uses three times is the word endure. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So obviously, he's saying already in verses 11 and 12, Christians are sold out for doing good. They are sold out for spreading beautiful behavior, and these servants in these households are to be no different. They're not to do evil. They're not to repay evil for evil. They're not to threaten and be harsh back. They are to show respect. And they are to endure while doing good, even if they get unjust treatment. Now, why? Obviously, he's saying it's not something that's a a good, gracious thing. If, If you do evil and get what you deserve, that's not what he's talking about. If you're sold out for doing good and the response you get back is more injustice, how can you endure that? How are you going to endure that difficult position? He gives the reasons in verses 19 and 20. He gives it at the beginning, gives it at the end. 
Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Or the end of verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, what is the reason that you could submit this way, endure this way? It's because you are mindful of God. You understand what's happening here in the sight of God. He's saying it is a gracious thing. What does that mean? Gracious simply means here you have God's favor. You have God's smile. He's saying the only way that you can continue to endure unjust treatment is not to hold out the the hope, the little bit of hope, maybe my master will change. He's saying the only way that you can endure in these difficult situations is that when you have the frown of the world, you can endure because you know you have the smile of God. That's the only way. The only way is not to keep your eyes fixed on those that you're serving and their frown and the injustice, but to know that you can endure because God sees, God knows, God loves. God's smile is actually on you even in the frown of this situation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if you are in this situation, it's because God somehow is punishing you, as if God somehow doesn't love you. He's not saying mindful of God means like what we mean when we say Santa Claus, better watch out. He's he's looking at everything you do, saying no, no, no. This is what the theologians used to call coram deo, meaning you live your life before the face of God meaning don't buy into the lie in suffering that nobody sees, nobody knows. I'm isolated, I'm alone, I'm being mistreated. Peter says the first thing that you need to do in order to endure is to understand you have the smile of God. He has called you to this, He has equipped you to do it, and though the world may not see it, he sees it. And he loves, and he knows, and he cares, and he's keeping, he's sustaining. That's the only way. Peter says you are going to keep going. He's not ambivalent to you. He's not tolerating you. You see the logic that Peter has here? If you live for the acceptance of another, that is like a cruel slave master. If you keep trying to live for someone else's acceptance, some other sinner, in fact, and you're gonna be subject to their whims of likes me, likes me not, have I done enough? As a Christian, you don't have to live for the acceptance of another, you live from the acceptance of another. The high king of heaven who loves you and calls you as his own, you are his child. You're mindful of all that you have in Christ. You live from his acceptance, not for it. You don't have to earn it. What a burden in suffering to add to what's already hard, am I doing it well enough? Am I doing enough? 
This says you already have his smile. You already have his acceptance as his child so you can endure. The darkness of the frowning situation you're in still can be lit up with the smile of his face. So here's what I want to say in application to this question, because you're going to get this question. This is often an apologetics question. Does the Bible actually support slavery? Christians get that a lot in our day, and I want you, before we move on, to be able to answer it. So I challenge myself, I'm going to try to answer it in three paragraphs or less. Because when you get into these conversations, it's not as if somebody's asking for a long conversation. They just want to know, do Christians really think that the Bible supports slavery? The answer is no. It does not. First of all, you shouldn't think that the New Testament somehow favors a form of fatalism that says to slaves, just endure. Don't try to be free. Just stay where you are, stay put. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives that general advice for people in the current distress. He says, stay where you are. Stay in the situation in which you were called. The notable exception is he says, but if you can be free, do that. Avail yourself of the opportunity to be free. Christianity is not fatalism. It's not saying, here you are and you've got to stay there. It's saying, no, no, no. If you can be free, do it doesn't support it as if it's somehow necessary for the economy and somehow just part of this world. He says, no, if you can be free, be free. Peter and Paul do not directly overthrow and overturn this social institution called slavery. Rather, what they do is they show the gospel implications and how it has a bearing on it. So, for example... When Paul asks Philemon to accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, and then says, not only will you treat him like a brother, he says, I'm persuaded in the Lord that you're going to do even more, which is saying, I I'm convinced you're going to set him free. Once you see that he's a brother in Christ, it's going to change everything. That whole institution is going to change in the light of redemption. Everything will be redefined. Or even in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul urges now, notice in 1 Peter, he doesn't speak to masters. In Colossians 4, he does. And he urges Christian masters to pay their slaves that which is right and fair and just and treat them as they would want to be treated by their master, Jesus Christ. Do you see how this would radically redefine this social institution, moving it from master-slave to employee, employer, and better yet, brother to brother? It would radically change everything. In fact, Masters and slaves at this social level being redefined by redemption would change everything, would uproot the very thing 
that define slavery. And if it's uprooted, it can only wilt and die. So it's not social overthrow. It's bringing the implications of the gospel to let slavery die a natural death after you uproot it. Now, that didn't happen. And one commentator said it just right, D.A. Carson, Douglas Moo, quote, that it took so long for this to happen is a sad chapter in Christian blindness to the implications of the gospel. In the New Testament, you have all that you need to see slavery uprooted and wilt and die, and the fact that it took so long to do it is lamentable. So no, the Bible does not support slavery, but you notice It's not just that the gospel has implications for uprooting slavery because Peter here isn't talking to Christian masters. He's talking to Christian slaves or servants to say the gospel has implications for you in your position as well. And that's what he moves to in verses 21 to 25. He goes right to the example of Christ. Look at verses 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You see that? He's saying this is a calling for you. What he wants to do is show you not just to be, you can submit and endure unjust suffering because you're mindful of God, but because you also have the example of Christ. So he wants to look at this example as a calling, and then he wants to see how Christ suffered and why Christ suffered. That's what we'll walk through. First, notice this Christ's suffering is actually a calling. Verse 21, to this you have been called. What's the this? Namely, unjust suffering enduring sorrows. You've been called to this. Don't view this life of suffering as a strange anomaly, but as a Christian calling, as a vocation, as what God has planned for you. Don't be shocked or surprised during this temporary exile of life on this fallen world. Don't buy into the lie that it's going to be easy. When you want in your heart this question that just bubbles up like, why does it have to be so hard? You ever find yourself asking that? I do all the time. Does it really have to be this hard? What should bubble up in your heart and mind is a verse like this that says, God says, yes. It's not a fluke, it's not an anomaly, it's not an abnormality, it's a calling. And many trials come to us because we're surprised that there's trials. He says the first thing you need to do is see this as a calling, not as an anomaly and to see that you're not left without an example for how to do this, Jesus suffered for you. And in doing, he gives you an example. 
So the question that should come to your mind is not only, okay, how do I do this? But it should also be why. Like, Lord, you're the high king of heaven. Well, you, if you say suffering is a calling, then I say, yes, Lord. But you're also my father. I have a hard time thinking about designing a life of suffering for my child. I need help. I need lots of help. How to do this the way you want me to and why you want me to in the first place. And he answers both of those questions. How? You have to look at the example of Christ. Look at verses 22 to 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If we're to have real help, Peter can't just give us vague generalities. Christ suffered for you. He gets real specific. He says, look, when Jesus suffered, he didn't sin. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't treated this way because he sinned. Every suffering that he got was unjust, all of it. He never deserved any of it, and yet he didn't sin with his life. He committed no sin or with his lips. No deceit was found in his mouth. And then when he received suffering, how did he respond? He didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So he was free, in other words, from the merry-go-round of retaliation. He wasn't on that. He was free from the slave master of living to get even that never was happening in his heart. You treat me this way, okay, eye for an eye. He says, no, when he was reviled, when he was cursed, he didn't curse in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten in return. So how did he do it? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why was he free from being a slave to retaliation, to getting even, to holding grudges? He could see the wrong, he could feel the wrong, he could name the wrong, and then he would entrust himself to the one who was going to right the wrong. And he knew it. What Christians can do when we go through the pain and agony of injustice, where that judicial sentiment rises up in you and you say, it's not fair. The Christian answer is, oh, don't worry about it. Not that big of a deal. Just, just sweep those feelings under the rug. Just suppress them. Just push them down. Don't worry about it. No, no, no. It says, see it, feel it, name it, all of that wrong, lament it, and then trust the one who will right the wrong. Believe that there is one who will handle it way better than you would, who will bring it to right way more thoroughly than you ever would, and trust that He will. 
when you can't take it at all anymore? Just give it all to Him and say, I believe that you see it, that you know it, that you feel it with me, and that you will make it right. Don't think that somehow enduring injustice is somehow because you're weak. No, no. It's saying you could retaliate. You could respond back. You could. Everything in your flesh is saying, uh, I'm going to do something about this. He's saying the Christian says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust God with it. Because I know it's just going to be a cancer that's going to eat away at me. I just know that I won't be able to handle it. When Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that he says, you've got this privilege of the gospel, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. He's saying, when you suffer and you, you want to get drunk with suffering, like it consumes you and it's all you can think about and it's in your face, he's saying, don't let your mind be filled with that. Let it be filled with Christ. Let it be filled with trust. Let it be filled with the fact that God will bring it to right. And did you notice what he said? By preparing your minds for action, by thinking about how great your salvation is, by refusing to be consumed with suffering, by doing that, you'll be able to hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you. Not just grace to endure, that grace he's talking about is the grace that makes everything right. Justice is coming. That's what he's saying. He will judge justly. So not just how did he do it, keeps entrusting it to God. Why? Verses 24 to 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love the fact that the Bible is not tone deaf in suffering. He says, why can you suffer like this? endure. A lot of people go right away to the sovereignty of God. And that's true and right. God does have a plan. He does have a purpose. He's working it out. But Scripture so often, rather than starting with the sovereignty of God, starts with the suffering of God. And it says you need to know why Christ is not immune from this. He doesn't just know about it. He came into this world of suffering to put an end to all suffering, and he took your sin. That's why he suffered. When you say he's going to judge perfectly, justly, yes, he already has judged your sin perfectly, justly. That's why he came. That's why he didn't retaliate. That's why he didn't send down legions of angels. Why? Because he wanted you and his family. He didn't want to destroy you. He suffered and endured for the joy set before him, which means the only way that you're going to endure suffering is to have 
fellowship in his sufferings. If you understand, he did it for me. He left me an example. I can follow him because he saved me this way. He's inviting me in to understand it, to celebrate it. And I'm not going to push against it. I'm not going to have a kind of distaste for this thing. That's my very salvation. Because I love Christ's suffering, I don't spit in his face when he calls me to supper. When I look at that, I see him not reviling me, not retaliating against me. I see him loving me, receiving me. Therefore, it changes all of our suffering. I can endure because I know why Christ did it. And then he says, you have now returned, Isaiah 53, by his wounds you've been healed, and though we were straying like sheep, Isaiah 53, we've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, meaning in our suffering, we're not only mindful of God, we're mindful of our shepherd. The one who endured all of that for our sake can sympathize with us in our weakness and suffering. We're not alone. Our shepherd is walking us through the valley of life's suffering. He's with us, he's present. But look at the completeness of this picture. He didn't just die and suffer so that he died for our sin, he also died that we could die to sin and live to righteousness. Which means that we get to be a different kind of person in this world than anyone else. When the world deals with suffering, they want to retaliate, they want to fight back, and this is saying only dead fish go with the current. A living fish can swim upstream, can go against the current, and if you now can die to sin and live to righteousness, it means when you're reviled, there's a different way you can go now. When people don't treat you fairly, there's a different response that you can have now, and it should look Christ-like. It should look more and more like your Savior. So let me just close with these two thoughts. Okay, if he's inviting us into the fellowship of his sufferings to know him more, to become more like him, what does suffering really do? I want to answer that. What is the design? Do you remember that when the Bible says suffering helps us endure, that very word used three times in verses 19 and 20, endure, and James says, count it all joy when you go through these various trials because it's necessary for the strengthening, your endurance. What does that mean? This is built into creation. You can see it. Have you ever seen a baby chick being hatched? It is not a cute, precious moments kind of occurrence. It is excruciating to watch. 
these chicks peck the egg and then pass out exhausted and then peck the egg and then pass out exhausted and just, it keeps going. And mercifully you think, just crack the egg open. Just spare the chick from suffering. And every time you do that, it dies. Because God has designed it in such a way that it is the struggle that makes the little lungs strong enough to live. And the Bible says again and again, don't think that suffering has no point. God wants you to make it. And if Hebrews 5, 8 says, even though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, he was sinless and he needed suffering to learn obedience, how much more do you think we need that to learn to be obedient and to grow stronger for the marathon in this fallen world. Don't fight back against the thing that God has given to help sustain you and strengthen you to make it to glory. It it is a good gift. It's a gift that nobody wants, but it is a good gift not only to strengthen you, but to refine you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, even though you're grieved by various trials, which is for the what? Which is for the refining of your faith. Christians understand holiness hurts. Conformity to Christ is hard because the fire is hot. But somebody who's a refiner knows that the metal is ready and it's refined when they see their reflection back in it. And your suffering is not just so that you'll have strength to endure and make it to the end. God is working it out where he's seeing his reflection back in you, making you more like Christ, refining you, removing the impurities. Let's pray together. Father, I ask now in this moment, I'm very aware that many people are going through many, many hard, heavy, hurtful things. And God, I thank you that you're not tone deaf. I thank you that you're not ambivalent. I thank you that you're not off on your own somewhere, not caring, not seeing, not loving. God, show us Christ in this moment, in this family meal of communion. Would you show us the example of Christ, how he suffered to save us. Show us that it is in this act that we become free by your wounds that we're healed. We're drinking and eating, celebrating our healing, celebrating our freedom. God, I pray that you would heal hearts even in this moment and that no matter how hard it is, no matter how confusing it is, we might look at your suffering for us and be able to say, I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.